So verse 7 of chapter 6 in Mark. I'm just going to read it. It says, Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, and to put on sandals but not to wear two tunics. He, he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the area. If a place will not welcome you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. All right, so I'm not going to read the whole passage. I just read 7 through 13. So before we get into what actually happened in this passage, we should remind ourselves that these, these men were not impressive men at all. And I, I've been here twice, I think, before talking about um, the, calling of, the original calling of the disciples. And um, I said then the same thing. These were not impressive men. They weren't called because they were impressive. They weren't called because they were especially faithful or good. They were just ordinary guys. They worked ordinary jobs. They weren't well educated. They didn't have any particular skills that would have been helpful in this traveling preacher ministry. But none of that matters. Their success will not be a result of their own effectiveness or competence. That's not why Jesus chose them. He chose these men to demonstrate His power and His ability to work through us despite our weaknesses. And that's good news for us because it means that God doesn't need or expect us to win people to Christ with our gospel presentations. Our public speaking skills are not enough to convince someone that they are in need of the blood of Christ. Our ability to form a bulletproof case for Christ is not sufficient. Our, our sound logic and reasoning are not sufficient to transform hearts and minds. True spiritual rebirth only happens as a result of the Holy Spirit's intervention. Only God can penetrate our hardened hearts. He chooses to use our gospel proclamation to bring about salvation, but there is nothing we can do to guarantee that someone will be saved. There is no perfectly articulate evangelism method that produces a 100% effectiveness rate. Like, there's nothing we can do to guarantee this is going to work. If there were, we would make that method our God instead of God Himself. Jesus knew that not everyone was going to receive and accept the message that His disciples were being sent out to preach. These men were sent out with the power to cast out demons and heal the sick, and people still didn't listen, just as people didn't listen to Jesus when He preached these same messages and healed people in the same ways. Our role in ministry is faithfulness in obedience to what God has called us to do. We are called to make disciples by preaching the gospel. We aren't promised any amount of success in our proclamation, in our evangelism. We are completely reliant on God to bring about faithfulness in this ministry. 
Jesus sent out the disciples in this way, in the way that he did, so that they would constantly be reminded of their personal dependence on Jesus Christ. He sent them out as empty-handed homeless men. They didn't have anything but the clothes on their back and a staff for walking. They couldn't find hope in the food they had for the next day. They didn't have a budget to spend on anything they needed along their journey. We don't know how long they were going about two by two, uh, but as long as they were out, they were aware of their dependence on God for everything they needed as long as they were out. Which makes me wonder, do we depend on God in this way? And I'm talking to me personally as well. Do we depend on God in this way? Do we rely on God for our daily bread? Or do we rely on, our, on the preparations we've made to ensure that we have enough food ready for tomorrow? Is Christ truly our comfort or are we only comfortable when we feel like we're ready for all the things likely to come against us? It might do us some good to calm down with all our preparing and planning sometimes so that we can figure out what we're actually putting our hope in, whether or not that's God that we're putting our hope in. Are we willing to give up worldly securities to ensure that our ultimate hope and security is Christ? If not, then we may only be dependent on God in our hardship, in the difficulties that come. I'm, I'm, I personally, I'm, I'm usually most aware of God's provision in the middle of some trial or difficult season. It's the times that are most trying, the times that feel overwhelming and beyond my power to overcome that cause me to look to Christ for my provision. In good times, it's easier for me to trick myself into thinking that I've got things under control, that I've put my family into this situation where we can relax and we can, we can enjoy the fruits of my, of my labor. And sometimes I don't realize until faced with hardship that Jesus Christ was holding everything together. That He's been in control all along. If the disciples ever got close to taking pride in the fruits of their own labor out on this journey, they were, they were quickly reminded of all that when their stomachs started growling and they didn't have any food on their person to eat. And, and that doesn't mean that we should go out starving ourselves and, and we, shouldn't go out on these, we shouldn't necessarily go out on these journeys like the disciples did. But we certainly should be looking for ways to remind ourselves that we are completely dependent on God's grace in every aspect of our lives. Maybe it's time to let go of some of the things in this world that help us feel secure so that we can find true peace and security in Christ. Now, I've been talking a lot about how dependent on God we are for everything. Um, another implication of that truth is that if someone rejects our gospel proclamation, it doesn't necessarily mean that we botched the presentation, that we, we missaid the gospel. The gospel in, of its, in and of itself should be offensive to some. It will be offensive to some. The disciples will will, were told that if someone rejects them, they were to shake the dust off their sandals and move on to the next house. On the other hand, it also says if someone lets them in, they were told to stay there for a while. 
They were told to stay there until they were to leave that area. Their initial message was that all should repent. But this extended stay would allow them to expand on the truth of the gospel. What all they were being called to turn away from. So repentance, they were called to preach repentance. But then when they're, when they're invited into these households, they're able to expand on, okay, repentance means turning away. What am I turning away from? What am I called to turn away from? And now what am I turning to? Who am I turning to? Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. So this, this message of repentance as it's laid out in the passage is, what, is all it says is preached for all to repent. Um, it was obviously more than that. They're sitting in these households. They're being invited in. They're saying more than that. You have to at least expand on what repentance means. They weren't just shouting repent in the streets or in these houses and leaving. That much is clear. And this should inform the way we preach the gospel. We are called to engage with people's hearts and minds in preaching the hope that is Christ Jesus. We are not called to condemn sinners by preaching a condescending message. The disciples didn't just preach repentance and immediately leave. They came into people's homes and called them to turn away from their sins by putting their hope in Jesus Christ. Despite the simplicity of this message, God was creating such a stir in the area uh, through the disciples that all... um, that it spread all across the land and King Herod of the area, King Herod over Galilee and Perea, that whole region of modern-day Israel, it spread to him, got his attention. And so I'm going to read that next, that next passage, uh, verses 14 through 29. It says, Now King Herod heard this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And because of this, miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from the past. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men, arrested John, and bound him in prison. Okay, so that first little bit, we're hearing the reaction of the people. The reaction is, everybody thinks he's a prophet. If they don't know he's Jesus, they know at least he's, he's like these prophets in the Old Testament that are, that are preaching the word. And now we get a little, we get a little side story here. So, so Herod just says that, um, that he thinks this is John who has ra- been raised from the dead. But if we're only reading Mark, this is the first we hear about John being killed. So, so Mark in this book goes on to explain how Mark, how and Mark, why Mark was killed. So he's, or how John was killed, sorry. And he says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised, for Herod himself has sent men, arrested John, and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. So Herod married his brother's wife, and John was calling him out on it. So Herodias nursed a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, John, wanted to kill John. But she could not because Herod stood in awe of John and protected him since he knew that John was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he was thoroughly baffled, and yet he liked to listen to John. But a suitable day came when Herod gave a banquet on his birthday for his court officials, military commanders, and leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, so his 
Daughter is Herodias, his wife is Herodias. It's a little confusing. It's the same name. Um, his daughter Herodias came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He swore to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? This mother who hates John. The head of John, John the baptizer, the mother said. Immediately, she hurried back to the king and made her request. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter immediately. Although it grieved Herod deeply, he did not want to reject her request because of his oath and his guests. His oath and his guests. He feels this social anxiety about going against his word that causes him to go through with this request. So the king sent an executioner at once to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded John in prison. He brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard this, they came and took his body and placed it in a tomb. So what we're getting here in this passage is a flashback. King Herod thinks that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And when he hears the news of Jesus' ministry, yeah, so, so when he hears the news, he, he, that's what he thinks. And so as a reader of Mark, like I said, this is the first time we've heard of John's death. So Mark goes on to explain. He gives us a flashback uh, that how and why John was beheaded. John was a faithful servant of God and a steward of the gospel, and we can learn a lot about what it means to remain faithful as a minister of Christ in this story. Uh, the first thing I want us to notice is that the same message to repent that piqued Herod's curiosity made his wife Herodias furious. It's the same message, but Herod was responsive. Herod was listening, but Herodias was very angry, wanted to kill him. John wasn't trying to be condescending or condemning to either of them. He was trying to speak the truth in love to someone who was taking part in blatant and public sin. And this whole scenario probably would have looked a little different if Herod and Herodias weren't Jewish. So this is the king of the Jewish area in Rome. So he wasn't actually a king, he was more like a tetrarch, but he, he called himself a king. But this is the ruler over the Jewish world, basically. And, and so he's a Jew himself, or he would call himself a Jew, him and his wife. Yet, he was committing this blatant sin. So, but because they were Jewish, they knew that to marry one another, for Herod to marry his brother's wife, was against the, God's law. They knew that. And so, they did it anyway, and so it made sense for John to approach them in that. Because it was against law, it made sense for John to call them out for breaking the law of God they claimed to serve. It doesn't make sense for us to call out atheists or Muslims or Buddhists in the same way because they don't claim to serve the same God as us. They don't care if they're sinning against the God of the Bible, just like we weren't convinced about our sin until we realized that God is who He says He is and that our sin is an offense against that God. So for someone to call out my sin in a way that's condemning to an eight-year-old. You don't punish an eight-year-old in the same way that you, that you call out an adult for their sin. An adult is aware of their sin and you calling them out 
is bringing them back and rebuking them for their sin. An eight-year-old doesn't understand their sin, and so you're not going to punish them the same way. You're, you're going to punish them so they know it's wrong, but you're not going to expect them to understand all that they did wrong in the same sort of way. It doesn't really matter when you became a believer. Before you are a believer, it's not the church's job to rebuke you for your sin because you don't understand your sin. Yes, yeah, so they don't care. Atheists and Muslims and Buddhists and people of all other religions, all, all other religions all around the world have to understand that God is their creator and sustainer and that He is full of wrath against our sinful acts before they will begin to feel the weight of their sin. They won't understand the weight of their sin until they know that God is who He says He is, the God of the Bible is who He says He is, and that our sin is a great offense against Him. They won't feel bad about their sin until they know those truths. So we can't expect them to turn away from their sin before they know those things about God and about themselves. So we shouldn't go around rebuking and condemning people, but we are also, we also shouldn't be satisfied with someone's curiosity. Herod was curious. He enjoyed listening to John talk about his faith. He knew that John was a righteous man, And despite the fact that John rebuked Herod for marrying his brother's wife, Herod protected him. Herod Herod protected John while he held him in prison. But his curiosity doesn't appear to lead to any real life or heart change. His curiosity wasn't enough to save him. So we shouldn't be satisfied when someone is curious about the gospel we proclaim. His pride made him believe that keeping an oath to his daughter was worth killing over. And curiosity may be one of the first steps that leads to someone knowing Christ and understanding the Gospel, but it isn't enough for someone to say that they want to know more about Jesus. So we can't just be satisfied with that sort of response when we bring the Gospel to someone. That they're they're curious, that they want to know more. It isn't even enough for someone to say they love Jesus. That might sound weird, but it's not enough for someone to say they love Jesus. You might, you might already know this, you might not, but Muslims would say they love Jesus. They might say they love Jesus, but they think of Jesus as nothing more than a prophet. He's one of their prophets in, in the Quran uh, or in their, in their stories. Hindus. Hindus believe in thousands of gods, so they might tell you they love Jesus. They might even tell you that Jesus is their favorite God. But that's not the God of Scripture, is it? Because... God is exclusive in the Bible. There are no other gods but the God. If our goal is to be faithful ministers of the gospel, we can't be satisfied with with pleasant conversations. We have to be intentional to speak the truth of the gospel into the life of the particular person we're speaking to so that they understand the weight of their sin and the hope that is in Christ Jesus. I'll say that again. We, we have to be intentional to speak the truth of the gospel into the life of the particular person we're speaking to. We can't be satisfied with, with simply pleasant conversations with unbelievers. We want them to understand the weight of their sin and the hope that is in Jesus. Another thing I want us to observe in this passage is the actual execution of John the Baptist. This execution was not an event for the public to come and watch, like a lot of executions were in this day. 
He wasn't, he wasn't given the chance to say any last words before an audience. He wasn't put on trial. He might not have even t- been told why he was being executed. He's just sitting in his jail cell one day, and a guard comes in to execute him out of nowhere. It wasn't a scheduled execution. They just came in and killed him. And as far as he know, he was as far as he knew before that point, he was in good standing with the king, with, with Herod. Even if he had been told why he was being executed, do you think that that would have been a comfort to him? <laughs> that he was being killed because of a daughter's request? Probably not. Probably wouldn't have been a comfort to him anyway. It's so easy for us to doubt that God is in control the second that adversity comes our way. We often think. I've been honoring God with my life and obedience to Him, so why is He making me go through this trial, this difficult time? It's so important for us to remember that even the most faithful of Christians, like John the Baptist and many others, are deserving of eternity in hell. You, me, all of us, John the Baptist, we're all deserving of eternity in hell. The grace of God is our salvation, our only salvation from that fate. We will never understand how exactly God is using everything for His ultimate glory and our ultimate good, but we can trust that He is. He is working it out for those ultimate goods. We can trust that even in the petty circumstances of John's execution, God is working. We have to ask ourselves if we are willing to endure suffering that feels meaningless for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean that it is meaningless. It just means that it feels meaningless in the moment. Just like I'm sure John's suffering felt in the moment that he had a sword above his head and didn't know why he was being executed. In Christ, there is always purpose in our suffering. Now, it would be easy for us to look at this story and only think, How can I be like John the Baptist? And there certainly are ways that that we can learn from John the Baptist's life, like I've already laid out. Like John was a a good minister, a faithful minister of God, a faithful minister of Christ. Uh, He came before Christ in a lot of ways. So there certainly are ways we can learn from John in this story, but I want to be sure and mention that John is foreshadowing the death of Jesus in this story. And you might have already caught that, or you might have learned that before. But in this parallel, Herod is like Pilate, in that he had nothing against Jesus, but gave in to what the people wanted in the same way that Herod gives in to his daughter's request. They they parallel one another in a lot of ways. Jesus is the greater John. John stayed in the grave, but Christ rose again. And we don't often look as much like John as we do Herod. We often look way more like Herod than we do John. We let our pride blind us to what is right. We sin against God because our self-indulgence becomes more important than our obedience and faithfulness. Herod let the importance of this oath he had with his daughter come above being obedient to, to, to God in the command not to kill. We let our pride blind us to what is right 
we sin against God because our self-indulgence becomes more important than our obedience and faithfulness. We must remember that there is grace in Jesus Christ for those who repent and turn to Him. We don't have to fear condemnation. Christ died so that we can be reconciled to Him. So we can go before Him in confidence that we will, He will welcome us with open arms. God will welcome us with open arms if we come to Him in repentance. Just like the perfect Father that He is.